Welcome to the Women in Oxford's History podcast series. I'm Alison. I'm Olivia. And in each podcast, we explore the life of a woman who's had an impact on the city, then talk to the researcher who's been delving into her past. For more information on all the women featured in the series, please go to our website, womenofoxford.co.uk. This podcast explores the life and impact of Dr Ida Busbridge, a mathematician and tutor at St Hugh's College between 1936 and 1970. Ida came from a family of mathematicians. After her father died during the First World War, she won a London County Council scholarship to attend Christ Hospital School. She later studied maths at Royal Holloway and University College London, where she excelled academically. When Ida began a DPhil at St Hugh's in 1936, she was one of only 17 women reading for a PhD across the whole university. Until 1939, when she submitted her thesis, she was an advanced research student and helped with undergraduate teaching. Over the next six years, she was occupied as a lecturer and assistant tutor, essentially working as a full college tutor, though without the title. During the Second World War, she turned down war work to continue teaching maths, a responsibility which she regarded as an important national contribution in itself. Towards the end of the war, she became frustrated by the lack of opportunities for female academics in Oxford and applied for a post in Cambridge. In response, perhaps at the fear of losing her, St Hugh's College finally made her a fellow and tutor in 1945. During her time teaching at Oxford, Ida worked to improve access to university for women from a variety of backgrounds, increasing the number of female maths students at Oxford. Former colleagues and students recall her non-traditional approach to interviewing. She would often overlook lower grades if she felt that students were capable. In this period, pupils attending prestigious fee-paying schools would often spend three years in their sixth forms before going to university, and many received extensive coaching for Oxford interviews. Grammar schools, on the other hand, usually only had the resources to keep girls on for the standard two years, which meant they were often less prepared than their privately educated counterparts. Ida was very aware of this difference and of the impact different schooling and backgrounds could have. Ida acted as a mentor, helping students to make friends and guiding them through their work and exams. Interviews with former students revealed that her legacy was both academic and intensely personal. The women recall sherry parties in her rooms designed to integrate first-year students and strawberry teas on the lawns of St Hugh's College after exams. A few students remember her using her own car to drive girls who suffered from hay fever to their exams at the examination schools on the high street in an attempt to avoid them suffering during their exams. One student recalls Ida being an amazing teacher and an amazing mathematician, but at the same time she apparently scared her rigid every week. While she is often seen as playing a key role in promoting the study of maths, it seems Ida also invested in her students' well-being. She gave advice not only on her female undergraduates' careers, but also their relationships. 
She kept in touch with a huge number of former students, retaining an interest in their lives and giving them support. This created something of an unofficial community of Buzzbridges girls. Many ended up working in jobs related to maths, and some found academic positions through her. Douglas Quadling at the Cambridge Institute of Education has estimated that at the time of her retirement, there were between 50 and 60 maths teachers in key positions influenced by Ida. In 1986, two years before her death, St Hugh's College established the Ida W. Busbridge Fellowship in Maths after it received a donation from the husband of a former student. While the identity of the man and his wife remained anonymous, it seems that she had been greatly influenced by Ida. Letters between Ida's sister and a friend show that she was delighted with the creation of the fellowship. During her lengthy career, Ida also held a number of other roles, including Fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society, Keeper of the Gardens at St Hugh's College, and Counsellor at the Open University. Ida made key contributions to the world of maths, publishing on radiative transfer, and became president of the Mathematical Association in 1964. She was one of only a few women to have held the position. The way in which Ida conceived her work can be seen in her presidential address. She explained that her aims were to give every girl or boy the opportunity to develop his or her mathematical powers to the full, and to foster those of special ability for the sake of the country as a whole and for the advancement of knowledge. She envisaged her roles in Oxford and elsewhere as ways of extending opportunities available to individuals and as an important national duty. Olivia and I are here today with Bethany White, who's been researching Ida's life. So Bethany, I thought we'd begin by reflecting on the women who've had an important influence on Ida and her yeah. work. It really came through when I was researching that the women that she idolised, there were three in particular, um, were all her maths teachers or were all in, involved in maths or in astrophysics, which she became really interested in later on. Um, so the first person she mentioned was a teacher at um, Christ's Hospital, um, who she said she really admired, not just because she was great at maths, but because she loved flowers and gardening, and she seemed to also have these other interests. Um, and it was through her that she applied to Royal Holloway to study mm -hmm. maths, because she'd been at Royal Holloway. Um, and then once at Royal Holloway, there was another woman, Marion Pick, who was her maths tutor, who she was really inspired by, and she said you know, she would really push us, and she wouldn't. She had very, very high standards, and would make sure we worked really hard. And then once she got to Oxford, she had a really good friend, uh, Dr Madge Adam, who was in astrophysics, and the two of them really collaborated, and that's what kind of pushed Ida into the astrophysics side of maths. Mm, so she seems to have found a kind of role model at each stage mm. in her life. Yeah, as she moves definitely. Through the career and I think there was a degree of emulation. I'm not sure if it was conscious, because lots of Ida students said she was very, very, you know, she had very high standards, and I think she got a lot of that from Marion Pick. The way that they were able to access yeah. either academic support or professional support was mm. often through contacts that tended to be women. And mm. I was just interested what you thought about her use of women to sort yeah. of achieve what she was able to in her professional life. Yeah, well, that really, really came through for me in reading about her life, not just from the beginning. I mean, she benefited from, from these informal networks, but she also created a huge network. And it's through her students that I found her and once I found her I found that they were all these women that she taught who she was still maintaining links with and there's just this huge 
network of women at work in the kind of mathematics arena. There's a lot of correspondence. She sent a lot of letters to um, ex-students just keeping up with their lives and their careers and giving them advice as well throughout the time that she was in touch with them. And it, I don't, I get the impression that it wasn't always, you know, her favourite ones or the ones that she particularly liked or the ones that did particularly well. It was anybody and they felt very able to get in touch with her. And this was all unpaid. Just unpaid. <laughs> yeah, it was all unpaid. It was all in her in her <clears throat> spare time. It was something that she did that was not part of her job in any way, mm. but it was something that she maintained for her whole life. You said that she often gave advice on kind of personal mm. issues or as well as it was quite a social relationship as yeah. well as a professional or mathematical one. Yeah, it definitely was. It was I think there is this sense of while it was rooted in in the maths, you know, she wanted women to do well in their lives, not just in their mathematical careers. Um and she you know, that extended to when they were students as well. She wanted them to be be well rounded and would encourage them to do other activities. She also I spoke to a couple of people and she expressed that she didn't really like their boyfriends. <laughs> Did she give a reason? No, I they think... They didn't like gardening. Yeah, probably. Or they weren't, weren't very good at maths, I don't know. <laughs> I know that she... One of them, she did think it was a distraction. It, it was always very measured and sort of for the good of these women. The benefit of the their benefit careers. Of their, yeah. I think so, yeah. Um, one of the main themes that came out in your research was mm. the way in which Ida improved opportunities for girls yeah. from non-traditional backgrounds. Mm. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more about how she brought about those opportunities for yeah. those girls. I don't really want to claim that she was campaigning for all these women from unprivileged backgrounds to come through, but what I just thought was great about her was um, she was very aware of the effect of background, yeah. um, which I'm not sure was particularly usual at the time. Um, and the, increasingly she became very involved in recruitment at St Hughes. She was sort of in charge of it and was aware, you know, if a, a girl came in and maybe didn't have the right grades or didn't perform so well in an interview, if she felt that 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 girl was able to achieve, she would say, your training isn't going to be as good if you know as somebody else mm. who's been to a very, very good school or had all this private tuition. So she was very keenly aware of not wanting to be just recruiting them from a small pool of privately educated students. So what was the environment for women like in Oxford University at the sort of time that Ida was there? Yeah, it's a really interesting period, actually, because it was after the time where women had really had to fight to be admitted or take degrees. They couldn't take degrees till 1920. So it was post that period, but there were still lots of restrictions on women, both as academics and as students. So I think that the story with Ida um, applying for a job at Cambridge, and that's the only thing that pushed St Hughes to, to, to offer her a full-time role, mm -hmm. I think that really sums it up, that mm -hmm. she really had to fight to, to be recognised for the work they were doing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that was as well because the women's colleges just didn't have the funding or the resources or... You know, they weren't able to give as many jobs as they wanted to. Um, so when Ida was a PhD student, she was teaching all of the female undergraduates in maths. So she had a huge workload um, that wasn't really recognised. And for students as well, there were the women's students were very, very restricted. There was actually a quota in place until 1957 that they had to maintain a four-to-one ratio of male-to-female students. Really? Yeah. Women. So there were... The so 25% of the student body were women? So, no, well, actually in practice, up until 74, when the colleges went co-ed, some of the colleges went co-ed, on average, I think between 1920 and 1974, there were only 16% of the student body were women. So in practice, it was actually 
even less fewer. Than, it was right. just they, they didn't want any more than four to one ratio. ratio. So in terms of student numbers, women were very, very outnumbered. Um, they just didn't have the same visibility in the university. Do you think that's what encouraged them to set up informal networks among themselves mm. because they were so hugely outnumbered by the men? Yeah, I definitely think that must have been a pushing factor. You know, you have to kind of rely on informal networks and help from other women. And you, I'm, I get the sense that there was very much a desire to help other women up if you'd had the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Lots of women I spoke to felt, said that they felt lucky to be where they were. So they often wanted to extend networks and extend help to other women. So I definitely think that sense of being outnumbered makes you want to, to help your own, I think. And I think that definitely played a part. For further links and background on all the episodes in the series, please go to our website, womenofoxford.co.uk. Thanks for listening. 